You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons Podcast. You can visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Friends, we're on Zoom. We're so glad you're here. Uh, if you were here earlier on Zoom and I crowded the camera and yelled at you, that's sorry. It's just what you're going to get sometimes. Um, but uh, welcome, everyone. Really glad you're at City Church. I'm Bill White. I'm one of the co-pastors here at City Church of Long Beach, uh, where we are a radically welcoming community on the journey towards Jesus joining him in the renewal of all things. That's who we are, and that is actually who we are becoming. So we are really, really glad to be here with everyone today, both in person and online. Um, it's just such a good thing. So uh, we particularly love to bless our kids because we think kids are like super important. Um, and so we love the kids here at Lafayette. We love the kids of our own families and our neighborhoods. And so uh, Ming Lu, I believe Ming is here somewhere. There she is. If you would welcome up Ming, she's going to pray over the kiddos. It's going to be amazing. I'm sure she, she's like a trained professional prayer. <laughs> Lord, uh, I want to pray for all of our children here, um, and as well as those at home who couldn't make it, and I pray that you would help them have a really blessed day today to learn a lot in the Sunday school or wherever they are. Um, I also pray for all of the um, people who will be teaching today and helping in the playground. Lord, would you have your hand on everybody? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much, Ming. So if you are a kid, you can hang out with Ming and Katie and Emma. They are going this way, and we'll be playing some games and hanging out and having a snack or something. It's going to be great. Um, and if you would now welcome our other co-pastor, Brenna Rubio. <laughs> she loves it when I give introductions like that, you know, her being so introverted and everything. Yeah, so I do. You know, put know. this back over there. There you go. Do the dance. There you go. We like to do the little awkward sharing the stage dance. Oh, hey, it is so good to be with you guys this morning. Um, I feel like, okay, you guys know, many of you know, some of you don't because you're new here this morning, but I am like the introverted pastor. I'm the quiet pastor, we say sometimes to Bill's loud pastor. Um, and yet I've had such, I just want to, I just want to tell you, I had an extra sweet morning this morning, just having some little connections with different people. Uh, as you've been coming in. And um, so, yeah, I just want to say, if I haven't had a chance to say hi to you personally, I'm still so excited you're here. And if you want to grab me after the service so I can actually look you in the eyes and say that, I'd be happy to do that. Same with you folks on Zoom. So glad that you're there. So we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Jonah, which some of you may feel like you know that story. Um, maybe we did a poll at the beginning and about half of us felt like we knew the story and to the people who were like, yeah, I have no clue. It was like, really, actually none of us do. So you're actually, we're all on the same page. Cause those of us who think we know the story, we just really know this one little piece. And even that, you know, there's like this like cartoon version of it that we are just trying to move past as we go through the book of Jonah together, as we are actually trying to dive into like a more, adults, complicated, looking at, hey, it's satire. It's, it's all these, these big things happening in this book. And, and so what's going to be interesting is as we read our story today, it may feel like the story should be over. See, there was this part where like God said something to Jonah, hey, go and talk to these people. And Jonah said, no, and ran in the opposite direction. And then Jonah got swallowed by a big fish. And last week he was sitting in the fish going, God, thanks for rescuing me from drowning, which is not the normal prayer from the belly of a big fish, perhaps, but that's what he's praying. It was worse five minutes ago. So I'm grateful for the stinky fish. And then the end of that story, he is vomited onto dry land. So he's, he's, he's been rescued. And now we land today going, okay, what happens next? And at the end of today's story, we may be tempted to think that the story's over because a lot of things are going to feel wrapped up. And so it's going to be really interesting that we're actually, no, we're just actually like halfway through the book. Like there's actually quite a bit more story to go, but still there is a feeling today of like, all right, we're starting to see some things be resolved perhaps. In fact, what I think we're going to see, if you think about that picture, right, this picture, if that's the last verse, we might see it up on the screen. Yeah. The Lord commanded the fish and it 
vomited Jonah onto dry land. So picture a big fish coming up and just mouth opens wide and bleh, you got to imagine Jonah is not coming out on his own, right? Anything else that was hanging out in the belly of the fish is also being expelled with him. This is not a neat, tidy, clean process probably, right? Well, there's sort of an imagery here and it's an imagery that is just ancient. It's timeless. We see it in all sorts of movies today. I was thinking probably one of the most sort of like popular, like lots of people have seen it would be Shawshank Redemption. Anybody seen Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, right? And what's the scene at the end when Andy finds freedom? I hope this isn't a spoiler for anyone. I'm so sorry, but this is an old reference. So I think I should be safe. You know, Andy's dug his tunnel and he made it into the sewage system. And we see that final moment where he's emerging from the tunnel, surrounded by sewage and wetness. And it's just kind of He's being birthed, right? There's this sense of as he, he emerges in the midst of all of this water and gunk, that this is, a, this is a birth story. This is about new life. This is about redemption and second chances. And so this is actually our clue. There's a lot of symbolism in this picture of Jonah being expelled like Andy and Shawshank Redemption onto the dry land. Andy, I'm sorry, Jonah, now we're going to get confused. Jonah is experiencing a new birth, a new chance. And as we read our story today, I think what you're going to notice is he is not the only one. This story is all about new chances, fresh life, change, transformation. But that's not to say that it's an easy story. And so in just a moment, our friend Dove Fordyce is going to come up and read for us. And I want you to notice as you're listening with wide open ears to what Dove is reading, I'd like to invite you to notice what is happening in your body. Are there places where you find yourself breathing easier? There's like, yes, this is like, I'm, I'm feeling like hope and new life as Dove reads these words. Are there places, are there words where you start to like clench, where you notice maybe there's something going on in the pit of your stomach, right? You know, that there's actually some, some stress and some resistance to what you're hearing. I think there's actually some interesting things happening as we read. And so I just want to invite you to pay attention because God actually can get our attention and speak to us just in how our body is feeling as we listen. So Dove, would you come on up and people, I'm going to, I'm going to invite you if you would like to stand up here at city church, we love to stand during the reading of God's word. Um, even when it's complicated. Jonah three. Then the Lord, word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the pro uh, proclamation issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not uh, perish. When God saw uh, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be God. Be seated. Uh, if we were sitting one-on-one, -on -one, I would ask you, 
What were some of the things that you noticed your body doing? Where were some of the places where you felt openness and a sense of ah, life? Where were some of the places, the words, the themes where you felt yourself maybe reacting with some tension? I definitely had some of those. I mean, I actually, sometimes I think we just want to let you guys know, like, we're people too. And like, I read the passage and I had some places where I was like, yes. And some places where I was like, ooh, that's actually human. This is a book that God, this is actually God connecting with humans, just like us who bring these complicated thoughts and emotions to the text, to the stories. So I just want to start from a very simple place. Sometimes this is like when, when I don't know what to do with the passage. This is just my basic, like, where do I start? And the first question is just like, what do I notice about God in this passage? What do I notice? And can I just be honest about it? And it was amazing to me where I was feeling a little tightness reading and thinking about this story. As soon as I just let myself, like, remember, Brenna, you just, this is a relationship. You get to be honest. What are you noticing? It's okay. And say it. That's good with honesty. Well, the first thing that I notice as I read through the story is that God is powerful. There have been all sorts of clues about that as we've gone through the book of Jonah, mostly in this word great that keeps coming up. Go to the great city of Nineveh, because what happens is every time we're talking about this great city of Nineveh, this sort of like it's, it's the superpower of its day and its area. What we're doing is we're contrasting the great city of Nineveh with the greatness of God. Because Nineveh listens to God. Nineveh is concerned about God and, and what God could do to them. Nineveh recognizes God's power. The great city of Nineveh says God is even greater. So that's just the first thing that I notice. That once again in this pas passage, I'm seeing like, yeah, God, God's powerful. And what that kind of tells me is something that God says God's going to do, God actually could do. All right. I notice that. I, I feel kind of neutral about that word, to be honest. I'm, I'm noticing. Okay. God's powerful. I feel sort of neutral about that because power is actually neutral. It all depends on how we use it, right? There's some superhero movies we could talk about, but that didn't go over well last week. So I'm not going to talk about superheroes. Um, here's the second thing I notice about God in the passage. And here's where I started to feel some tightness. And I wonder if some of you did too. I noticed that God gets angry at evil and violence. There are words in these passage about God expressing, communicating judgment. God threatening destruction. This, this sense of need for God to relent. And so I noticed that in this passage, God gets angry at evil and violence. And I do want to make that specific, that it's not just that God gets angry. That matters, doesn't it? I mean, it's how, when, when I'm in a relationship with someone and they're angry, it often helps me to understand why. Because if they're just angry, like they just yell about anything and everything, I'm going to back away a bit, right? Like, this is not someone I necessarily, I'm going to feel the safest with if I don't understand what's happening when they get angry. But the passage actually makes it pretty clear that Nineveh knows why God is angry. They know that they've been doing evil and violence. And that is why God is angry. We don't have the specifics of that, but you can probably do some imagining. I mean, when you are a superpower, don't we recognize that superpowers have this tendency to flex their muscles sometimes, right? And exert their power inappropriately sometimes. Um, and we can all think of examples of that. So Nineveh was guilty of evil and violence and, and God was angry. And so, okay, what we see about God, I, how do you respond to that? I mean, I'm just, I'm just going to let you just think for yourself. 
There may be a part of you, and this would be completely valid, that says like, hey, as long as it's God being angry at evil and injustice, at violence, I'm good with that. Because I've experienced evil and violence and injustice. And I want God to be a God who gets angry at that. I want God to be that mama bear who gets between her cub and anything that would threaten it, right? I need that God. So there's a part of us that may be like, yes. But then for some of us, we've had too many of those relationships where anger has been destructive, right? And we have seen power wielded in a way that is damaging, indiscriminate, hurts people. And so we read about God being angry and it, it maybe brings up some of those hence complicated feelings in us. And I wanna honor that. I wanna actually tell you that's okay. We actually get to sit with that a little bit this morning right? You have had experiences and they are real and they are valid. Now, here's the third thing that I recognize about God in this passage. So God is powerful. God gets angry at evil and violence. God's compassion is bigger than God's anger. God's compassion is bigger than God's anger. It's actually a tension we see all throughout scripture. Like there's just this, I think because we're limited, because we're human and we just, how do we, how do we recognize that? How do we, we balance all of this, but this tension between this God who gets angry at evil and injustice, things that break and damage relationship, kind of the smaller local relationships and the big cosmic relationships, right? This, this tension between that God who gets angry at those things that break relationship and do harm and the God who is always hoping for restoration, always inviting, always working for better. And, and just to hold the both and, I mean, we tend not to be very good at it as people, right? There's just a holding of cognitive tension. We like to simplify things. We like to make it one or the other. It's just easier for us to grasp. It's kind of this like sort of like psychological shortcut, right? That just makes it easier for us to go through life sometimes. But here, especially in the book of Jonah, we see this wrestling with tension that just keeps going back and forth. And, and actually what's really interesting is, as we've noted before, Jonah's supposed to be, I mean, he's like the anti-hero of the story, right? Because he's sort of, he's the prophet. He's like supposed to be like the prophet from the chosen nation who would just like, would have this special in with God and you would think he would get it right. But what we see over and over in the story is it's actually the, I'm gonna put, you know, quote marks, heathens, the religious and cultural others who keep sort of wanting to give God more credit. Don't you think there might be mercy? The sailors who don't want to throw Jonah overboard, right? They want to be merciful. Here in this story, where it's, it's the, again, heathens who are saying, maybe God will be merciful. I know that Jonah came and preached the message of judgment, but, but maybe God will be merciful. Let's hope, let's lean in that God might be compassionate. It's so interesting that at least for some of us, it's been communicated to us, like putting the emphasis on the judgment. Like if we're avoiding that, that that somehow that, I mean, again, we just, we want to do one or the other, right? We want to kind of pivot this morning. I'm trying to say, let's hold the tension and scripture just constantly puts the emphasis on the compassion. That, that is the end of the story. That is always the trajectory. So uh, Bill and I wrote a blog this week. Uh, we have a blog where we sometimes just kind of reflect on leadership and being pastors, that sort of thing. And so we were both just, just thinking about what it's been like for us over the last few years and some ways that our faith has shifted. Some of the things that have been really good and we've kept, you know, from sort of our spiritual heritage and where we started as 
kids and, you know, over the course of our ministries and, and, but also some of the things where we're like, man, we're, we think there's a different way, a better way. And so Bill had this, um, this great section that I, since he's not preaching this morning, I wanted to share his words anyway. <laughs> I like co-preaching, not really. Um, he said, I had some missionary friends actually say to me, if we don't focus on sin, hell, and judgment, then why would missionaries be motivated to go to the ends of the earth? And maybe, Bill suggested, people would go because of love? Could there be? <laughs> I mean, is this groundbreaking? Maybe people would go because of love? Because I, I think in Romans, which is one of those books that we like to turn to a lot, it says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads them to repentance. And, you know, maybe love? Could that possibly? And, and then went on to reflect for himself that actually letting himself focus on love, focus on God, not as the one who longs to judge us, because I, I'm not, I, I would love for someone to point to me a passage that said that God longs to judge people. He longs to forgive. And yet it talks about judgment, but he longs to forgive. He longs to be with us, to love us, to heal us. There's one passage in particular that really stood out to me that said, it's from Joel 2. So one of those prophetic books in the Old Testament it says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. He's abounding in love and he's slow to anger. Where's the emphasis? It's absolutely the love, right? It really even made me think because I was like, well, in traditional sort of churchy theological language, what we're looking at in this chapter of Jonah is something that we would call repentance. Anybody heard that word? Yeah, kind of one of those churchy words, um, which, you know, sometimes we, I know churchy words can feel a little triggering sometimes for people. Because again, if you've, if you've been in a spot where the focus is all on the judgment, that brings up some stuff. But what I think we see in this passage here is a way to reframe that could be so helpful. And it is actually completely biblical for what repentance actually means. Because what repentance actually means is a turning around. There's this sense of change. You were going that way. And your heart is changed. And you go this way. And what I love in this Joel 2 passage, there's this return to God who's abounding in love. What if instead of the word, you know, or at least we start to equate repentance is about returning to love. There is this original love relationship that we were created by and for, and God is just continually inviting us to move back into it. We make choices that tend to pull us away, and yet God is constantly saying, I am the one who is slow to anger, abounding in compassion. Would you return to me? So there's actually a picture that I want to I wanna try and look at together that might just kind of give us a little bit of a, a visual. We like to do this here at City Church. Oh, thank you. I'm going to go ahead and draw one. But if you have trouble seeing it, at least this will give you a spot. So there's this sense, this picture of repentance that we have, um, that we are just doing life, right? We're going along and our life has a certain trajectory. And yet there are these moments that come, thank you, Bill. There are these moments that come and they actually can happen more often than we think. If we start to pay attention, we start to be open. If we believe that God is this God of compassion who wants to reach out to us, who wants to send us this invitation towards new life. These moments that sometimes we call kairos, Fancy Greek word. It's kind of a special moment in time, God breaking in. But we recognize something, something, we, we just recognize that there's a holy moment happening. There's a moment of invitation where God is trying to get our attention. 
And when that happens, it's almost like we take a little bit of a, a detour. You know, it's sort of like one of those moments in a TV show where, you know, everything kind of stops and the main character kind of steps out of the action and like has a little conversation with himself or with us, the audience. This is one of those moments. We're taking a break from real time, from Kronos time. And we're going to do some thinking and reflecting. And it's kind of like you could think of it as being two steps. The first step is where we are just, it's the thought step. What is going on here? What is it? that God is trying to say, am I willing to listen? Am I willing to even take some of the moments that we've taken today and stop, take a few deep breaths? What's going on inside of me? What's going on outside of me? Try to do a little bit of work to understand. And then when we have a sense of what God is saying to us, that we actually get to respond. We get to say yes or no, because an invitation, well, we get to decide. So for instance, you know, um, Jonah, we're gonna, Jonah had a very clear moment. I mean, all of us, aren't you a little jealous of Jonah? Like he gets, he's like clear God, like boom, like it's just undeniable. He knows what's happening. Jonah, Jonah kind of gets the easy version. I don't, I haven't had that many moments. There have been actually some story for another day, but where I've, I felt it, like it's been clear, but so often they're more subtle. So Jonah gets this word from God. And the first time we have this Kairos moment where God is breaking in and God is speaking to Jonah and giving Jonah this invitation to be more loving, to live in love, to go to the Ninevites and invite them to repent, to return to love. Jonah says, no. And actually, I think what happens is, and this goes back to like one of our first sermons, right? He just doesn't even think at all. He's just like, no. And so the trajectory of his life moves away from God. And I mean, he ends up literally down in the depths, right? Swallowed by a whale, thrown into the ocean. So that's his first turn around the circle is just this straight, no, I don't want to think about it. I'm just having this visceral reaction. I will not reflect. No, God, I'm going to do my own thing. But then what happens, of course, in this chapter, we see something very different happen. Because now Jonah was given a second chance, um, not in a way that was necessarily felt fun, but he was thrown overboard. uh, And he was swallowed by a big fish uh, in our story. And so he ends up in the belly of a whale for three days, doing a lot of thinking right? It's like being put in a timeout corner. That is where Jonah has been. And so he has been in, in the whale. And last week we looked at some of the song that he sang from the belly of the whale. Joe, if we could get that slide um, up here as well uh, with what he says from the belly of the whale. If I, yes, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, love for them. I loved how Bill pointed out last week that he's just kind of projecting a little bit. He can't own, I clung to worthless idols and I turned away from God's love. He's, he's not quite there yet, but he's, he's nodding at the fact, right? But now I'm reflecting and I realize your love is good and I'm grateful. I will sacrifice to you and what I have vowed, I will make good. So Jonah spent his time doing the reflection, doing the work this time. He's starting to respond. And so now as he's vomited up on the beach, he makes a very different choice, right? And now his choice is actually moving him towards being the person that God called him to be all along. This is sort of the traditional picture of repentance, the traditional picture um, of Jonah. Like, look, he, he did wrong. And then... He takes the time, he does the work, goes around the circle, and he does better. He turns around, and it's real, and it's true, and we experience these moments all the time in our own lives, right, if we pay attention. I was thinking for myself, and I'm sorry if some of you feel like I tell stories about being a parent too often, but it's just a big part of my life. I have four kids. It's a big part of my life, Um, and so often for me, what Kairos looks like is recognizing in the moment that I'm either about to snap at my kids or I have snapped at my kids, that voice, that nudge internally that invites me to return to love, 
right? That reminds me that there is a different way to do this. And for me, there's a Psalm, Psalm 131, that is the picture for me of like, I can still inquiet my soul with God, like a weaned child with its mother. But as I'm parenting, God is actually inviting me to remember that I am loved. Because so often what's happening in me, if I do this work of reflecting, is the reason I'm snapping is not because my kids have done something, but it's because whatever's happening with my kids, I'm starting to feel like a bad mother. I'm just feeling some shame, right? I'm, I feel not enough. I feel over my head. Um, and out of that shame, I want to respond like, like Jonah, right? I want to respond with defensiveness. I want to respond with anger. I want to run away because I've had this little shame trigger in my parenting. But to recognize God in that moment saying, no, Brenna, I love you. You don't have to be a perfect parent. We don't have to be in shame. And the love that you experience with me, you can extend to your kids right now. You can do, take a few deep breaths and enter back into your parenting from a better place. We all go through this all the time. And, and it's not like most of the time is not as drastic as Jonah, right? Like every time I make a poor choice as a parent and yes, it happens. Oh my goodness. Yes, it does. Um, it's not like my kid, I've irreversibly damaged my kids, right? With that, like one time I yelled. It's more that sort of like, what's the little percentage change, right? Like who am I becoming? Who am I practicing becoming? Which version of myself am I becoming the more whole version of myself? Subtly, gradually, over time, as God makes these invitations. So this is, this is sort of the personal, individual, walking around the learning circle, these kairos moments, these ways that we can return to love. We're invited in. But one of the things that I think particularly in the U.S., We've been very weak at, particularly in churches that are predominantly white or influenced by white culture, is that we have tended to focus so much on the individual experience of returning to love that we don't talk enough. We don't pay enough attention to the, the collective experiences of return. And that actually is the main focus of this story, right? Because yeah, it's a big deal that Jonah finally goes, right? He, he walks a day into the city and, you know, doesn't have a megaphone, doesn't have a social media platform, just start sharing the message. But the really miraculous part of this story is how the Ninevites go around this circle together and experience this collective moment of deep mourning and deep repentance. It's this really interesting communal process, right? Like it, it didn't happen overnight probably because the passage lets us know how huge Nineveh is. It's, it's mammoth. It's going to take three days to walk across. So by walking one day in, Jonah's not even to the middle of this like kind of metropolitan area of Nineveh. It's huge. So the message first is going to spread just by word of mouth, right? But miraculously, it does. People hear and they believe. I mean, I think it's so interesting. They're given 40 days. That's what Jonah tells them. They have 40 days to respond to this message. And, and they're going to need some of that time. Because again, the message, the word is going to have to catch on. It's going to have to be contagious for people to even hear it. But and 40 days is, I mean, it's just a really interesting number in scripture. Some of you may know that from other stories, right? Like the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert uh, when they were liberated from Egypt. There's, there's the sense of this is a time of preparation. This is a time of change. It's sort of a holy threshold. I personally, going back again to that birthing imagery, I think it's really interesting. It's the number 40 because it's 40 weeks of gestation. So I often think of it as this gestation period that someone is going through when we see the number 40. They're in this process of becoming. 
So they, they have this time to reflect and it, they, the message keeps spreading, it keeps spreading and they believe. It's concrete, like they believe. They're not just gonna write it off. They're not just gonna, they are gonna take the time. They really listen and they realize that this is true. This is true of who we are. And we believe that God is true to what God is saying. And out of that, there's this need to respond. And the response seems to come from two different places, right? There's this sort of groundswell just amongst the people. But then at a certain point, word actually reaches to the leader. Word actually reaches the king. And the king also has this immediate heart change. And, and so now it's not just the groundswell from kind of the bottom of this hierarchy, this, this system of power. But at the top, there's also a directive. Say, this is that morning that you're doing. Everybody should do it. We should all be fasting. We should all put on sackcloth and ashes for days and do you notice the part about the animals? Even the animals are not supposed to eat. Even the animals are supposed to wear sackcloth. It's the whole community. Now, I think that's interesting just because, again, like we have tended culturally in our day and age to sometimes resist collective repentance. I didn't do it. I didn't oppress that group. I didn't write that law. That was generations ago. I didn't do it. Well, do you think the donkey did it in this case? Did the camel? No. But they were part of the community. And there was this real sense of interconnection, right? Because, you know, what they did or didn't do, they were still gonna feel the effects if destruction came, right? We have this myth sometimes of independence that just isn't reality. We are all actually connected and our health, our wellness, our lives, they're connected together. And we, we see that, they recognize that in this passage. And so the repentance happens even to the level of the animals. And it's not just the ritual, right? I mean, we've talked about this before as we've gone through Jonah. It's not just sacrifice for the sacrifice. It's not just the action of putting on sackcloth, the action of not eating. It's about the actual heart change that that represents. And it's about the actual acts of repair, life transformation that's going to be made. So the king in verse eight, we hear him saying, let everyone call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. It's not just about the religious ritual. It's about actually following it up with real life change. It's about a heart change. Again, looking at that passage in, in Joel two, return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. The sackcloth means nothing if the heart change isn't there. The fasting means nothing if the evil ways are not renounced. So now we think, okay, what does that mean for us? It's just possible that we too are living in a great city. It's just possible that we too are citizens of a superpower. And that if we reflected on whether or not there are ways that we collectively have lived into and lived out evil and violence, we could probably find some things, right? And some of our answers might be different. What would be on our list? But we'd be able to recognize like, yeah, we, 
We have not been a perfect country, yeah? There are things that we have to repent of, and there, there are things that are complicated for us to even understand because it is, they are such big collective problems, but they're real and they're there. So for me, you know, thinking about this, given the weekend it is, to me, there was an obvious one just to, to look at together this morning. Again, this isn't the only one. There may be others on your list that you're thinking of, but tomorrow is Indigenous Peoples Day, right? What for some of us, we grew up hearing and experiencing as Columbus Day. And yet there's been this, this move over recent years to say, perhaps we shouldn't center the white European, European experience. What would it look like if we centered, instead of the story of discovery and triumph, what if we centered a Native perspective where this is a story of colonization and oppression and loss? How would that shift things for us? I'll be honest, like I, I, I just know for, for many of us, if this isn't our story, there are people we know or this is their story, that feels like a complicated move. It, it brings a feeling, I think, of helplessness and fear up in us. Because if we were actually to look at that story, we don't know what to do with it. We just don't know what to do with it. And so, so maybe it feels easier to not name it. Kind of keep it under the rug, not talk about it. Because what do we do? How do we fix it? What does repair even look like? Um, one of my stuff. A leader I just love to learn from, listen to, read about, uh, named Brian Stevenson. Some of you may know him from the movie Just Mercy that came out several years ago. He leads the Equal Justice Initiative, um, one of the founders of the Legacy Museum. And so his, his focus and expertise has been on um, uh, death row and also just the experience of slavery and, and racism and continuing oppression in the Black community in the United States. But so thinking about that experience, I think there's some parallels as we think about our relationship with Indigenous peoples. But he reflects on some of what gets brought up when people are thinking about how we approach history together, how we tell history in our schools, in our churches, all these different places. And, and it reflects this. Some people are like, well, I'm afraid to deal with this history. Um, because I'm, or sorry, I'm afraid to deal with the truth because I don't know what I'll feel. I don't want to punish America for this history. He's saying, you see the echoes here? It's not about the emphasis, not on judgment here. I don't want to punish. America for their history. I want to liberate us. It's an invitation to healing. I want us to get to something better. But to get there, we're going to have to talk more honestly about the barriers we constructed over 400 years. He's not trying to hurt. He's saying we're going to have to walk around this circle. We're going to have to reflect honestly to even have a chance to respond differently and move towards freedom together. Because racism isn't just bad for people of color, it's bad for all of us. It's, it's a spiritual wound for all of us that needs to be healed. Um, there is, I'm not sure if we have, have the quote for this just realizing I forgot one. Uh, uh, do we have a quote for Caitlin Curtis? I put it in late. If we, if we ever have like a technical issue, it's my fault or Bill's fault because we did it late. Um, I'm going to share it on social media because I, I forgot I didn't have it in this particular printout. Um, but uh, a friend, Caitlin Curtis is reflecting and saying, this is the history of the church with native peoples as well, that we don't want to 
admit the harm that was done through missions, the system of mission schools throughout the United States, that we don't spend the time acknowledging the extra danger to exploitation and human trafficking that Native women face, that we don't recognize and surface the ways that Native history is just not talked about in our churches. And it's for all the same reasons, right? We don't know how we're going to feel. We think maybe it's going to make us uncomfortable, and so we just avoid it. But what if that can be our act of repentance this morning, our act of returning to love, to say, no, we don't have all the answers, but this morning we actually want to spend some time in reflecting this morning, in recognizing that there is an invitation for us to learn more, to name, yes, there were real harms, to name the beauty and the gifts of this, this neighboring culture. Just, I, I mean, honestly, I was thinking of it a little bit. Um, you know, sometimes we talk about making reparation, the sense of sort of a giving. And I was like, I mean, there are all sorts of different ways I could invite us to respond, right? But what if we actually made a gift of our time this morning? Not me saying, oh, why don't you go home and read something about the Tongva, the native people on whose land we are today? What if we actually took some of our time here and we learned a little bit and just said, yeah, we will be open. We will not sweep it under the rug, won't hide our head in the sands. We're going to look in the faces of our neighbors with whom we have this complicated and hard history. And we're going to believe that God is compassionate. And we're going to believe, even if we don't see it clearly, as somehow there's a way forward together, a way to return to love. So as this, it's about five minute long video plays, um, this is the invitation. I mean, of course, you're welcome to say no. Um, but for those of you who would like sort of saying, yeah, I don't know what it looks like, but somehow I want to say yes this morning. I want to be willing to give this gift of time and attention as my act of repentance, my act of returning to love. What I want to invite you to do is to think of this as actually a prayerful experience, because this is a video that a, a museum put together. It could be very easy for you to revert to your inner fifth grader and just kind of like, oh, there's a documentary play. And just kind of zone out. I would understand it, but I'm making you aware of that possibility so that if you would like to, you could instead take a few deep breaths with me right now and say, this is God inviting me to see and to love my neighbor. I don't know what's next, but I'm here and I'm sad. I'm sorry. And we can do that together. You take a few deep breaths and then the video is going to play. The Santa Monica History Museum is honored to help tell the story of the Tongva, the indigenous inhabitants of Santa Monica. Also known as the Gabrielino or the Gabrieleño, the Tongva were one of California's richest and most culturally sophisticated pre-contact societies. The Tongva have lived in the Los Angeles area for about 7,000 years. Tongva territory was similar to the footprint of Los Angeles. The northern border was shared with the Chumash in Malibu. Coverage extended south to the Newport Beach area, east into the San Gabriel Mountains, and west to include local islands such as Santa Catalina. The vibrant hunter-gatherer culture of pre-contact Tongva included arts, religion, an organized society, and a wealthy trading economy. 
Though Tongva life was irreparably harmed by the violent displacement of their villages, today the Tongva community has resurrected many of their ancestral traditions. The Los Angeles Basin was populated with about a hundred Tongva villages. This painting by Mary Thompson is the closest representation that we have to a typical pre-contact Tongva village. Tongva families lived together in dome-shaped structures. Houses were often large enough for extended families to live together. Tuli, a water reed, was integral to the Tongva way of life. Thick woven mats of tuli were used to insulate homes. Tuli was also used to make everyday objects and even toys such as dolls. The name Tongva means people of the earth. The Tongva had a reciprocal relationship with the local ecology, acting as stewards of the land. They avoided overuse of natural resources, instead fostering healthy regeneration. Staple foods included acorns, nuts, seeds, vegetables and fruit, as well as deer and fish. Instead of making pottery, the Tongva used a rock called steatite or soapstone. This unique rock was mined on Pimu, the Tongva name for Catalina Island. It has an oily soapy texture and is light and easy to carve. Soapstone's durability and heat resistance made for excellent cooking implements. The Tongva had a wealthy trading economy. The Tongva villages near Santa Monica traded with other communities that lived farther from the ocean. Items used in trade included soapstone bowls, shells, dried fish, and animal skins. The Tongva were known as skilled boat builders, specializing in a plank canoe called a tiat. Sticky tar from a local source, what we know today as the La Brea tar pits, was used to fill gaps between the planks, thus making the tiat watertight. Elements of the Tongva language survive in Los Angeles place and street names such as Topanga and Coanga. Mumatahiko Way, a short street in Santa Monica, is named for a Tongva phrase. Mumatahiko means breath of the ocean and was used in a Tongva song for launching Tiat canoes. Murals throughout Los Angeles feature an indigenous woman named Toiparina. Toiparina was a Tongva shaman, linguist, and educator. She was angered by the abuse of her people and destruction of their culture by the Spanish missionaries and soldiers. She planned an attack on the Mission San Gabriel. The plot was discovered before it could be carried out, and Toiparina was arrested. Toiparina is embraced by the indigenous community and contemporary Angelinos as an inspiring figure of strength. Kuruvanga Springs, a Tongva settlement on the west side, is located on the campus of University High School. It is cared for by members of the Tongva community and is used for Tongva celebrations. One such event is the annual observance of Indigenous Peoples Day, which is open to the public. We look forward to seeing you at the Santa Monica History Museum, where our old Santa Monica room highlights Santa Monica's Tongva roots.